This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to episode 215 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is from Leicester and looks at two solicitors operating in the city. And once again, we return to a familiar theme of the difference between perception and reality. But before we begin, as this is the last episode for Christmas, and the snow is falling softly out... (laughs) Oh no, I'm not going with that stuff. Look, you know just how much I appreciate you every day, not just at Christmas. Like a dog. Not just for Christmas. Anyway, as we do come to the end of the year, remember, I have a special prize for Patreon supporters, which will be announced on the 1st of January. Join me here in Edinburgh, where I'll treat you and a friend or partner to lunch or dinner at one of the best restaurants in the city on a day of your choice in 2021. If you prefer, or you have no plans to come to Edinburgh next year, I will send you the three best true crime books I've read this year. Just head to patreon.com slash a UK true crime to be in the chance of winning. And there is still two months free membership available until the end of this month. Incidentally, when I posted this competition on my Facebook group, a couple of people moaned saying, why was a strange man, me, trying to get a date? Let me assure you all, including Big Dave from Bolton, that this isn't a date. Sometimes, You do wonder if it's just you, right? I seem to more and more. Anyway, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially the new members of this exclusive club. That is Ollie Cutler, Steve Day, John Cleland and Sarah Mortimer. Thank you all so much for joining me. Your support is much appreciated. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Have you played this game yet? I might only be on level 91, but I already love Best Fiends as it's a casual game that you can just play when you have a few minutes free. I play it when I'm waiting to pick my children up from various activities. It's great, as you don't need internet connection. I played earlier today for 20 minutes when I was waiting to pick my dog up from the vet, socially distanced of course in the waiting room. I really enjoy the challenging puzzles and the gameplay is awesome, with amazing characters who you collect during the game and who can be used strategically later on. Like me, I guarantee you'll love the vibrancy of the colour quality of the game design, which is always a huge deal for me. So why not come and join me on Best Fiends? Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. And please do take a look at my blog at uktruecrime.com where there is an outstanding article, not the usual tiresome nonsense that I produce, but a really personal article from Suze, who is the host of the Dark Side podcast. Please read the moving article and then listen to a true crime podcast called the Dark Side podcast. 
Okay, let's set some context for today's story and see if you can guess the month and year. Number one in the UK charts was Lady Gaga with Let's Dance. Hey, we could be dancing after dinner on our non-date. In the US top spot was Beyonce with Single Ladies and Brackets, put a ring on it, close brackets. Look, it's not a date right. It doesn't matter if you're single or not. And at number one for 14 weeks in Australia, the album charts were... Seriously? Friends of the show, the Kings of Leon, showcasing their drudgery with Only by the Night. That's when I'd listen to it in the night when I'm asleep. In the news this month, 61 people died in a nightclub fire in Thailand. Chelsea Sullenberger landed US Airways Flight 1549 on the Hudson River shortly after takeoff from the airport in New York City. All passengers and crew members survived in what became known as the Miracle on the Hudson. Barack Obama was inaugurated as the 44th President of the United States of America with Joe Biden as his Vice President. And in UK true crime news, possession of extreme pornography became illegal under the Criminal Justice and Immigration Act of 2008. So did you get the month and year? It was January 2009. Today's story is from Leicester, a city in the East Midlands around 100 miles northwest of London, most famous for me as being somewhere I used to drive past when really tired on the way home from watching another great victory from the mighty Leeds United. 54-year-old John Court and 51-year-old Vina Patel were business partners at a solicitor's firm in Leicester. Just a normal solicitor's practice, like so many you see around the UK, And to look at John and Vina, they look like your average solicitors, the sort of people that you would trust with your legal work. In the local area, they had a good reputation for doing a great job for the standard sort of work you'd expect from a small partnership. It was the 15th of January 2009 when Vina's daughter, Inisha, began to feel concerned that her mother had not arrived to pick her up as arranged from her work as a pharmacist at Leicester's Glenfield Hospital. This was most unlike her mum. So she contacted her dad, Surendra, who picked her up and together they head to Vina's office at Court & Co. Solicitors. On arrival, Vina's BMW was parked outside and the lights were on in the office, but the doors were locked. That was strange. But maybe Vina had headed out somewhere, so the pair headed home to pick up a spare pair of keys for the building and they let themselves in. It was then that they had the terrible distressing experience of finding Vina's lifeless body at the foot of the staircase. A pendant from her necklace was lying on the stairs, as was one of her shoes, and there were traces of fabric around her mouth area. It looked as though she had tragically slipped and fallen down the stairs, and despite being almost certain that Vina was already dead, they dialed 999 and were told to straighten the body out to clear the airways, but when the paramedics arrived, 51-year-old Vina was declared dead at the scene. But pathologist Guy Rutty, who attended the scene that night and carried out the post-mortem the next day, was not sure that Vina had been killed in an accident. In particular, he was concerned about injuries to the recess areas of her face, especially around her left eye, where the injuries in these parts of the face just weren't what he'd have expected to see from someone who'd fallen downstairs. There were also no signs of disturbance in the office and no marks on the stairwell. In essence, 
There was nothing that he saw which suggested that Lena had fallen down the stairs. And the post-mortem examination found a number of bruises and grazes, including bruising to Vina's lower left arm, which suggested that she'd been held or pressure had been applied by her hand. Vina's neck had been broken and there were signs of asphyxiation. The pathologist said there were no hand marks on the neck area, but if hands had been applied through some sort of fabric or material, that would explain the absence of any such marks. Hence the significance of the blue fabric, which indicated precisely such a thing. Detectives had to ask themselves whether Vina did in fact fall, and if she did fall, what caused this to happen? Was it just an accident, or was it because she was being attacked? And then there was the possibility that she hadn't fallen at all, but she was attacked somewhere else, maybe near to the stairs where she was found, and then her body was staged to make it appear as if she'd had an accident. But just who would have wanted to hurt the mild-mannered and popular solicitor, Vina? Detectives began to look more closely at her lifestyle, looking for any clues that could suggest that somebody would want to hurt her. But it seemed that she, her husband and daughter, lived a very straightforward lifestyle. But then when they began to look at the partner in the business, 54-year-old John Court, it was quite different. John was well-known locally, and okay, I won't use that pillow of the community cliche, but he had a good reputation and was even elected as a borough councillor in May 2007, although that didn't go so well, and he had to resign in September 2008 after the local newspaper revealed that he'd only managed to attend 14% of council meetings. And part of the reason for this lack of attendance was his private life, which since his divorce was somewhat chaotic. Although he earned more than £110,000 per year, he was living way beyond his means. He lived in a rented penthouse flat in Leicester, but in addition to this he rented two apartments in Chelsea, never a cheap place, which he used for entertaining what we shall call his girlfriends. He paid for one girlfriend, a 23-year-old former Miss Black of Nottingham, to live at one of the flats in south-west London, while the other flat he kept for when he was meeting another woman he was having an affair with, the wife of the government minister in Zimbabwe. In addition to these two women, he had a serious addiction to expensive London sex workers, and in just six months, he accumulated a bill of £17,000 at one hotel in the West End of London, where he would entertain these workers. The manager of the hotel recalled, and I quote, a string of very young, black girls wearing very short dresses and high heels visiting court. This lifestyle of sex workers, expensive hotels, restaurants and parties was way beyond what court could afford even on his salary and the debts began to mount up. And by September 2008, court was in a fair bit of financial trouble with bank loans of £171,000 and he'd entered into an insolvency agreement under which he agreed to pay his creditors £670 a month. But even earning his salary, Court wanted more, so he could pay this money off quickly and resume the lifestyle that he enjoyed so much. Detectives wondered 
if he'd been responsible for Vina's death purely from a financial motive. This suggestion appeared to be supported by Vina's husband, Surrender, who told them that shortly before her death, Vina had confided that her business partner had been badgering her into hugely increasing the firm's life insurance policy. This was to protect the business in the event of either partner dying. And Vina agreed that they should increase their life assurance cover from £500,000 to £1.5 million after John told her that he had a serious illness. And Vina also suspected that he'd been taking money from the firm to pay some of his debts from his private life. Surrender later said, We knew he was running out of money. We knew that he was taking money here and there. I told Vina it was disturbing me a bit that he doubled the life insurance policy, but she said that John's been hassling me for a while to do this. As the investigation continued, the Solicitors Regulation Authority was brought in to inspect the finances of the law firm and they found £1.4 million worth of suspicious outgoings from the company's business accounts. As well as this, it was found that John Court had stolen more than £650,000 from nine clients that his firm was representing in the sale or purchase of homes. So it seems that once Vina Patel knew what was happening, at the very least, John Court must have known that her knowledge of this meant that his career as a solicitor was in serious jeopardy, which would mean an end to the lavish and luxurious lifestyle that he'd been enjoying. And furthermore, if Fina died, John Court was the man who would earn £1.5 million from her misfortune. Further DNA analysis of Vina Patel's body took place. When swabs were taken of her hands, the swab of her right hand showed a mixed profile, including her DNA and that of another man. It was clear that this man was in direct contact with Vina Patel and specifically her hands. Fortunately, this man's DNA was on record and it led detectives back to London to a man who lived in Kensington, West London, called Brian Farrell. Detectives looked at mobile phone records of the day that Vina had died to establish Farrell's whereabouts. Interestingly, records showed that on that day, Farrell was picked up by phone mast near his home in the morning before catching a train to Leicester, arriving that afternoon. During the day whilst Farrell was in Leicester, he made several calls and sent and received a number of text messages to another phone. And that phone was owned by John Court. Had Court really hired Farrell to kill his business partner? By 5.30pm, Court was close to his office, as was Brian Farrell. That day, Vina was of course unaware of what was planned, and she had an afternoon appointment with Leon Lloyd, a former English rugby player. He was the last person, apart from her killer, to see her alive. An appointment with someone called Khan was added to her diary by John Court. Detectives believed this was to keep her in the office so that Farrell could carry out the hit. And at 6.05pm, Court called Vina Patel in the office on her mobile phone. Following this call, text messages were sent between Court and to both of the mobile phones owned by Brian Farrell. One detective said, 
it's plain that John Quartz was aware of at least two of Farrell's different mobile phones. He is receiving from one mobile, he is sending a text within a couple of minutes to a different mobile. Clearly, the suspicion here is that Quartz was checking that Vina was still in the office before giving Farrell the go-ahead to make the hit. The phone records then suggested that having killed Vina, Farrell headed straight back to the train station, catching a train that got him into London at 9pm, with him being safely at home by 10. And their phone records showed that a few weeks before, Farrell had come to Leicester to carry out what looked like a dry run for the murder. Both men were arrested on suspicion of murder, with detectives believing that Court had paid Farrell to murder Vina and make it look as though she'd accidentally fallen down the stairs. Farrell denied murder. Age 37, he was born in Trinidad and once served in the Foreign Legion. Now he sold sex as a male escort, and he was a barman in a club. The pair knew each other because, according to Farrell, Court paid him for sex. When questioned about his DNA being found on Vina's hand, Farrell explained that he was having an affair with John Court. They'd had sex in the office in the month before Vina's death, so his DNA must have been accidentally transferred. Farrell told detectives that it was perfectly normal for him to speak regularly on the phone and via text to Court as they were having a sexual relationship. He claimed that the presence of his DNA on Vina and the mobile phone records showing he'd been in direct contact with her didn't mean that he'd killed Vina. As for Court, he denied being responsible in any way for Vina's death. He told detectives that actually he'd been having an affair with Vina for the last 20 years, something I should add that Vina's family strongly denied was the case. Court said it was only when that relationship broke down that he began seeing other women and went off the rails. At the trial at Nottingham Crown Court, 54-year-old John Court and 37-year-old Brian Farrell both pleaded not guilty to murder. The jury took 22 hours to deliberate their verdict and the unanimous decision was that the jury didn't believe either of them. John Court was jailed for life with a minimum term of 29 years for hiring a hitman to murder his business partner and the hitman Farrell was jailed for a minimum term of 27 years. Farrell and Court remained emotionless as the unanimous verdicts were given, whilst there were whispers of yes from Vina Patel's family in the public gallery. The judge told Court and Farrell, you deprive the family and friends of Vina Patel of a cherished person. She quoted a statement from Vina's widower, Surendra, saying that since her murder, the family had been dogged by torment, depression and paranoia. The judge continued that you, Mr Court, were able to have murdered a close friend of 30 years, an erstwhile lover of 20 years, and partner, and prepared to help you with your divorce, reveals your true character. You are a controlling person who will stop at nothing to achieve your aims. You are the driving force behind the murder. Farrell, who had to sit down halfway through the judge's sentencing comments, was accused of following where court led. The judge told him he was prepared to help his friend by carrying out a callous murder, motivated by money. She said, Court knew this case backwards, 
and the thought of nearly every answer to every question asked. Where Mr Court led, you followed, and followed willingly. Speaking after the verdict, Vina's husband, Sarendra, said, We wanted justice for Vina, this is it. This man Court is completely callous, there was no reaction at all. I think he's the devil. If you ever want to meet the devil, he is it. He destroyed our family. Vina was the glue. She was the laughter of the house. With her around, we didn't have to worry about anything. I miss her every second of the day. To us, she was more than mother, wife, daughter and sister. She was the one person we could all turn to, who we trusted and relied upon. She provided the comfort and security. A warm, generous, honest and caring person, while still being strong, assertive and passionate. For the family, her premature death has unimaginably changed our lives. Without her, our lives are devoid of joy and optimism. Our only hope is that we can finally move on, forget the deceptive, unimaginable way she was taken from us, forget the image that haunts my daughter and me when we found her, forget the fear she must have felt in her final moments, and begin to cherish the many wonderful memories we have of our limited time together. One aside from the trial is how the trial almost collapsed due to the behaviour of a detective involved in the case. During the trial, Detective Constable Ivan Messiah, real name, I promise, was said to have made suggestive sexual gestures to a female juror. It started off that he puckered his lips in a kiss and afterwards he was said to make a circle with his hand and put the other finger going back and forth in it in a rhythmic motion. Quite what he was doing, goodness only knows. The juror that he was flirting with, I use the term loosely, was a brunette in her mid-thirties. Astonishingly, the juror wasn't appalled by this and asked one of the other police officers to pass him a note with her phone number. But this officer, luckily saw sense, refused and reported the request to the police. The trial was stopped for four days as the matter was investigated, but it was concluded that the trial could resume. But the woman involved and another juror felt, and I quote, upset and confused and were not able to continue, leaving the trial to conclude with just 10 jurors. This isn't the first time there's been an incident like this with a juror. In 1993, a man named Paul Powell was in the gallery at Cardiff Crown Court when the jury who included, again I quote, an attractive, smartly dressed young lady, returned to give their verdict. Powell, for some reason, loudly wolf-whistled the woman, but the judge was seriously unimpressed, and Powell spent the night in jail for contempt. And of course, as always, in white-collar crime-like fraud, there are innocent people affected. John Oates from Leicester had £150,000 taken by court after the sale of his mum's house, he said. He's a disgrace to himself and the profession. And others in the legal profession were, of course, angry and distressed by the revelations during the trial. Interesting, if you look at some of the online forums before the case came to court and afterwards to an extent, there's some real vitriol, there's some real passionate opinions either way. I suppose members of the legal profession, seeing a member of their profession in court facing these charges, is pretty tough to see. One fellow Leicester solicitor, Noel Walsh, described court as appearing as, I quote, a very traditional, upstanding, very well-dressed and spoken solicitor 
someone you would trust. He said, I was staggered as more evidence came out. In all the business dealings I had with him, he was very professional, and so was his partner, Vina. Indeed, Noel. Not something that happens to those we know, is it? It's always other people. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I said at the very beginning about this story being all about our common theme of the difference between perception and reality. And all jokes aside, who is traditionally more trustworthy than a middle-aged solicitor in a well-established local practice? And that man was John Court. But of course, unbeknown to many, his life was unravelling. And it would seem that he saw killing his business partner as the only way out of the situation that he'd managed to find himself in due to his lavish lifestyle. It always fascinates me about when Court actually decided to go through with the killing. All of us have wild thoughts sometimes about what we might do or like to do to change a certain situation. But when was the moment that he decided that the thought which had briefly crossed his mind was to become reality? And then after that, coming to work every day with Vina, who he'd known for so long and, according to him, had a sexual relationship with for over 20 years. How do you make everyday small talk, knowing that you're planning to murder them? I don't think it gets much more cold and callous than that. And for his crime, it is likely that he will die in jail. I wonder how he feels right now in his cell as you listen to this podcast. Any regrets, I wonder. I mean, real regrets, not just about getting caught. But of course, our real sympathies lie with Vina Patel and her friends and family. Just 51 when she died, we have so much to live for. Then her life was just snatched away on just another day by that greedy, selfish man she'd known for so many years and no doubt fully trusted as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. Remember, the 37th most popular UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of the UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. There's about 52,000 of us there now. Remember that CrimeCon is coming to London in June, so get your discounted tickets if you search CrimeCon UK and use the discount code UKTC. I'll even throw in a bag of goodies at the event. Move quickly as I'm told that CrimeCon will be increasing prices on the 1st of January. And to support the show and go on a date, oops, sorry, and claim lunch or dinner in Edinburgh, all my favourite true crime books for this year, just get yourself over to patreon.com slash UK true crime. As well as you and a friend coming to spend some time with me in Edinburgh at a top restaurant, you will also of course get the bonus episodes and all the other behind the scenes stuff. Come and join the fun, you know you want to. That is patreon.com slash UK true crime. So that's all for me for this week. So enjoy any time you have with family and friends during the Christmas period. And the good news, no, the good news is I'll be back again to brighten your life on Tuesday. Well, sort of good news, isn't it? <laughs> well, on that mixed bombshell, until then, please do take it easy and please don't let all the others get to you, however hard it is sometimes. And most of all, stay classy. Cheerio.